That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Cal Newport, and my dilemma is that I have way more books than I'll ever have time to read. Okay, so I felt personally judged when Marie Kondo told everyone they shouldn't have more than 30 books in the house. And then I felt personally seen when a meme popped up that responded, you mean like on my nightside table? Now, Kondo did clarify that if books spark joy, you can keep as many as you like, which I most certainly have. But I would guess that she'd still want me and you, Cal, to keep our endless supply of books tidied up in some way. So the problem, of course, is that we want the next book on our list to be right in front of us, calling us, pleading with us to open it and get going already. And once it's off on a shelf somewhere, it's really easy to forget about it or put it off. So you've inspired me to solve this dilemma, not just for you, but for me as well, because my side table is currently, I believe, at nine books. So here's the rule for you, for me, for everybody. You are allowed just two books on your night side table, the one you're currently reading and the next one up. The rest of the books that you're most excited to read should go on a designated shelf on the bookshelf in the order that you want to read them, separate from all the other books on the bookshelf. There needs to be a space so that once you've finished your current book, the next one slides up into that second spot on your nightside table and you don't feel like you're going to risk misplacing or forgetting about a book that you know you really want to put in that list. Dilemma fixed. Now, the only problem is if you were more worried about finding the time to read them, I'm not really sure I can help you there. That is a problem that I have. And you're the one who's here to talk to me about maximizing time after all. So let's get into that. The commission has spoken. Check out our brand new podcast, ESPN Daily, hosted by Mina Kimes. Monday through Friday, she takes a look at the most interesting stories at ESPN in just 20 minutes. She's smart. She's funny. She includes puns. You should listen. You can subscribe now to ESPN Daily wherever you find your podcasts. That's what she said. Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, the author of six self-improvement books. He writes the Study Hacks blog, which is focused on academic and career success. And his current book is all about the ways that we use our technology and specifically our phones and social media. We have this fascinating conversation about how social media apps actually are using advanced science to hack into your brain and steal your time. Why technology isn't inherently bad, but we need to be intentional in the way we use it. Uh, he talks about his new book called Digital Minimalism and how to sort of digitally declutter, then work backwards and add back in all the tech that you need and that serves you and not everything else. And then we kind of get into this big picture of how our phones take up so much of our time and really become a statement on who we are, who we want to be, how we want to spend our time and what we're not doing if we're spending our time on phones or social media. Also, a 1999 Saturday Night Live sketch featuring clownpenis.fart comes up. So hope you enjoy. That's what she said. Super excited to have Cal Newport on the podcast. I'm sure regular listeners will see a theme as I'm bouncing around from people who engage with each other, comment on each other, recommend each other for the podcast. And uh, Cal came recommended because a lot of what he's written about in his books has come up uh, in conversation on this podcast. Um, I want to start with Way back when, growing up and how you, how you found yourself to become an expert on how to work well and now on uh, digital minimalism. So 
Let's talk about being a kid. What kind of kid were you? Kind of nerdy tech science guy from the start? Yeah, always a computer nerd. My mom was a computer programmer when I was growing up, so I was exposed to programming at a young age. So I, I always had a computer. I was hacking on the computer from a young age. Uh, also, though, was involved in other things. I mean, was quite a social guy, was a mid-distance varsity track athlete. So I, nice. I had a life that pulled in a, a lot of different strands so I could, you know, come from the track back to my high school tech company onto a computer and back out to the, the exercise room. So uh, definitely an unusual but interesting mixture of traits when I was growing up. And where did you grow up? Mainly in New Jersey, sort of near Princeton, New Jersey. Okay. Um, so you're you're balancing uh, the track stuff. I was a collegiate heptathlete, so you're uh, you're – Mid-distance stuff was always the, the the bane of my existence, but a part of my training. Um, so you you're you're balancing all this stuff. At what point are you a teenager who decides you want to start your own business? Well, the, the thing to keep in mind about that's the timeline, which is this is the late 1990s we're talking about, which was the first tech boom. This was the tech boom with Pets.com and Webvan. That first time when the Nasdaq was going crazy. And one of the, the weird side effects of that first tech boom is that otherwise reasonable adults figured that it made a lot of sense to hire teenagers <laughs> to do large <laughs> tech contracts. There's just a sense of, I don't know, don't young people know a lot about technology? Uh, let's give a lot of money to the 16-year-old to design our website or to build our web strategy. I think it was one of the rare windows in the history of business where people would actually think it was a good idea to sign contracts with people who were so young that their dad had to drive them through the meeting. So I took right. advantage of it. <laughs> I don't <laughs> so know. I think people do that window. now yeah. with social media because they know that they don't get it. So they have to hire young people to explain to them how to be on TikTok and how to best sell their social media apps to, to other young people. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, Saturday Night Live always runs an old episode before the new one now, uh, a shortened version. And they ran an old Jerry Seinfeld, David Bowie episode from 1999 this past Saturday, and there was a sketch for some sort of, I think it was maybe a law firm, but they were late getting to the web, and they weren't in a rush, and so their website was something awful like, you know, tinybabypenises.com or something, and it was just I a reminder tell- of how absurd the internet used to be. Yeah, and I can tell you exactly what it was, clownpenis.fart. That's that. it! Well, yep. Clownpenis.fart! <laughs> I don't know where yep. I came up with baby baby penises. I knew the penis was in there. Um, yeah, and, and it's funny. I was just uh, I was just thinking how incredibly distant that feels now. Uh, the, the idea of like, oh, well, we missed the the website with our name, so this is what we're stuck with. Um, and, and it reminded me when I was reading your book, you talked about, um, and, and I, I'm only going to skip ahead for a second. You talked about the introduction of the iPhone, and it was essentially an iPod that you could call people on, and. I completely forgot the introduction of the iPhone as being that simplistic and not being about all the other many things we use it for. Yeah, things move so fast. I mean, I went back when working on that section of the book and talked to the original head engineer who worked under jobs on it. And that's what he confirmed. It was an iPod that made calls. The big problem they were solving is that people used to have their iPod and their Nokia Razor. That's two separate devices you'd have in your pocket. That was too much stuff in your pocket. And the iPhone was going to combine them into one. And that, that was the original marketing push. We forget about it. But yeah, I, I think it's a great example of how quick, how quick things have been moving in this particular world of consumer-facing tech. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So back to your, I believe, 17 years old and you decide to start a tech company. What was the goal? What did you think you were solving? What problem? Nothing that exciting on the surface, right? On the surface, we were doing essentially website development for companies. Now, the big insight that, that I had with my, my business partner it was my, my high school friend, uh, Michael Simmons. Our big insight was we figured out early about outsourcing. And so what we were doing is we were going to these meetings in our ill-fitted suits and had the laminated spiral-bound pitch books. And then we had teams in Pakistan and India that would do most of the actual graphic design and development. So we were sort of early to this idea that there was this arbitrage at the time, this sort of huge inefficiency in that you had an excess number of heavily trained graphic designers and programmers overseas without uh, enough work. And so we were playing that arbitrage game and, and making pretty big high profit margins doing it. What did your parents, I mean, your mom's obviously a computer programmer. So was she like, oh, good, following the old family footsteps? Or were they concerned about you already diving into uh, the business world? Well, I think they were fine with the computer programming stuff. So, you know, I was a programming nerd and I was you know, taking CS courses at Princeton in high school, that type of thing. The business, I'm sure, made them a little nervous, especially when there was contracts involved and, right. and a lot of money, you know, changing hands. And the interesting to remember, the, the thing to remember about like 1998 or 1999 is not only were there no smartphones, but we didn't have cell phones, right? So I was running this business in an age where I was either in school or at practice for most of the working days. <laughs> That's what made it particularly interesting is that we had to run a business, talk about lack of accessibility. I literally couldn't be reached for maybe 90% of the hours in, in the workday. So it required a lot of creativity. Uh, I missed a lot of school and got in some trouble for that because I had to go <laughs> to business meetings and et cetera. But they luckily let me graduate nonetheless. So it's clear from a young age you figured out some some work hacks and some ways to be successful, which is why you started writing books about it, how to win at college, how to become a straight-A student, how to be a high school superstar, all that stuff. And you wrote those sort of after your own educational career. You, you went undergrad at Dartmouth, your Ph.D. from MIT. Um, and, and while you're in, in, in your sort of own academia, what did you think that you wanted to do with the computer science and with your studying of, of sort of how that, how that relates to everyday life? Well, I mean, at first, the idea was I wanted to just be an academic computer scientist. So when you're studying any field at a high level, the ultimate goal, this is the message you get from the professors you're studying under, is to be an academic, to do original research, to push the field forward. And so once I realized maybe halfway through my undergraduate career that I maybe had a shot at an academic career in computer science, that, that became my goal. That lifestyle, the autonomy of being a professor is what I, was, what I was looking for. I was writing books at the same time, but it wasn't until later, until later in my grad student career that the two worlds came together. At first, it was I was training to be a computer scientist. Oh, and I also wrote books. And those worlds were completely separate. My doctoral advisor discovered I wrote books because she came across one at a table at the MIT bookstore. She had no notion <laughs> I was doing that on the side as well. And so those were really separate worlds. And then they all kind of came together once I got to Georgetown and had my professorship when I realized, wait a second, I work on technology. I'm also really interested on the impact of technology on society. I could probably be writing about this stuff that I'm also working on, writing about the broader impacts. And, and so those worlds came together. And, and now there's a great consilience between what I'm doing as an academic as a writer. But until recently, it's quite separate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's 
there, there's that academia and, and the computer science stuff that would connect you to all the people that all, also work in that field and maybe not a lot of other people. Whereas when you're incorporating the study of, of communications and how it affects our everyday life and our work, uh, suddenly you've opened yourself up to the everyday person who, who is learning from your uh, expertise without necessarily needing to understand all the stuff that goes into it, all the research that got you there. Um, so you, you're writing books and you end up uh, back in 2016 writing Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. This feels to me like a pivot point for you in understanding uh, the, the very current conflicts for people in staying focused, doing the job, uh, workplace productivity, and all these new technologies. Um, so tell me how Deep Work sort of a very short description, because I want, I want to get from that to, to the newer book. Right. So the idea behind deep work is that uh, in the knowledge sector in particular, which is about 50 percent of the U.S. economy right now, the ability to focus without distraction is being widely undervalued, that we're, we're very distracted with email and Slack and personal digital tech like social media and our attention bounces back and forth all the time. And we are forgetting the value in sustained attention. And so the argument of that book is that this is a market mismatch, right? This is something that we're getting worse at at the same time that it is becoming more valuable so that if you specifically train yourself to be an expert concentrator or if your team or organization prioritizes unbroken concentration, it's a sort of unfair competitive advantage right now. Yeah, so, I mean, this was a huge thing for so many people, and I think a lot of people were even very slowly able to step outside their bodies and recognize their, their, their difficulty in focus. There's been some really interesting stories about people struggling to read books because they have trouble focusing on that for a long time. Um, when they're so used to these snippets on the internet. Um, so you're, you write deep work and the response of so many people to you about social media and technology and how they struggle to balance that with the messages of your book are what led to digital minimalism, right? Yeah, because deep work was really focused on the workplace. It was these unintentional consequences of new technologies in the workplace. And this was the big feedback I began to get from readers after the book came out, which was, okay, maybe we buy this, but what about the impact of tech in our personal lives? Which was really focused much more on things like phones and social media and the attention economy, which is actually quite different than what's going on, let's say, in an office place with your email or Slack. And so I was getting a lot of pressure from the readers. Okay, but what do we do about tech in our personal life? It was really something that was becoming clearly a problem in our culture, especially starting around 2017, where it, it really began to uptick. And so that's what digital minimalism was. Okay, let's turn from work to people's personal life and find out why are people uneasy about their tech and what they should do about it. Well, you are what, 38. Uh, 30, 37. 30, 37. Soon to turn 38, sure. Yeah. Okay, so you're 37. You've never had social media accounts. I, I, I'm not sure how that's possible. Were you, were you so aware before we even learned of all the dangers that you never put your toe in the water? Or how is it possible that you never joined Facebook and Twitter and everything else? Well, I, I can't reconstruct exactly how that came about. But there, the, the two things I remember is one is uh, Mark Zuckerberg was a contemporary of mine. So we were, we were both at Ivy League schools doing tech companies at around the same time. So there was probably some notion of, jealousy there. Like, well, why is this guy's right. company, the Facebook.com, why is this getting so much attention? I'm not going to use his company. And the other thing I remember is I, for whatever reason, I really hate listing favorites. And people forget that 2004 Facebook, the whole thing was about my favorite movies, my favorite quote, my favorite book. Right. And I have a block. I can't do that. Even when people ask me, 
You sound like my husband. I get so annoyed. I'm like, would you rather, what's your favorite if you could only, he's like, no, I'm not playing the game. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's what Facebook was. So I I didn't sign up, but then it put me in this weird position. I was like an anthropologist who had just arrived at, (laughs) you know, the distant island. And it was so interesting to be able to watch this, to be one of the only people in my generation who was able to watch this with some distance that, you know, after a while, it became clear that, oh, I'm not going to sign up for any of these things. It's much more interesting to study them than it is to get to get lost in the world. So I think I'm the only one. <laughs> I think I'm the only right. person my age who's never had a social media account. But uh, it turns out it's allowed. You know, I, yeah, it's a, a friend. <laughs> well, and, you know, there are some who would who would argue, you know, you can't tell everybody, oh, don't drink alcohol if you never try it or, you know, whatever those, you know, rules are for trying to comment on other people's habits without understanding maybe why they're drawn to those things. Uh, but you're right. It does also allow you to view it from afar. And one of the things that I think watching or observing people get sucked into their phones, even as someone who does that a lot, is is the absurdity of it. The, the idea that if you ask someone, do you want to spend I don't know, seven hours of your day staring at a screen and not talking to people and not engaging, they would say no. But if you actually showed them, that's what they're doing. And so from afar, you're watching and you're like not engaging in the benefits or the positives that people get from social media. And you're then able to just limit it to the things that stand out as negatives. Let's talk about um, Tristan Harris uh, and, and that part of the book. It reminded me of a of a, it would be like a, an episode straight out of Silicon Valley, right? Where you know a guy creates a better internet where he doesn't want to sell people's uh, sell people's personal information and then realizes that that's not possible within the scope of the industry. That's kind of what I felt like when you introduced this guy Tristan Harris who tr- who tried to stop internet companies from making uh, money off of essentially our time and focus. Well, yeah, Tristan Harris, you know, his startup was acquired by Google. So he, he was thrown into the Google world and he witnessed firsthand the degree to which these giant attention economy monopolies are specifically engineering their products to capture attention, just like an ExxonMobil engineer is explicitly engineering their drilling equipment to get more oil out of the ground. And so he does the Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire type move. He writes a manifesto. You know, it is, it's titled something like respecting our users' attention. Like it really is out of a right. Cameron Crowe movie, right. and he distrib- distributes it. And it, you know, it gets on the desk of, of Larry and Sergey. And like, yeah, this is this is great. You know, it's like that scene in Jerry Maguire where everyone is clapping when he comes down into the lobby of the of the conference, and they say, "We're going to give you this new role. You're going to be head of thinking of, you know, user ethics or this or that." And they put him in this role. And it is as if you were just put in an office in Siberia. Nothing happened. No changes were made. He had no role or influence in the, in the company. It's like being the guy at ExxonMobil that says, hey, maybe we should drill less oil. Uh, you're not, you're right. not going to have a big impact. And so he left and basically became one of the early whistleblowers. Other, many others actually followed after him. But he was one of the first whistleblowers to say, guys, you're not just using this stuff so much because you like it and it's just a, a natural engagement with it. It's the entire business model. We're hacking your brain. We're, we're using advanced science to get you to look at this way more than is useful or healthy for you. And so he was the, he was the start of this sort of sequence of whistleblowers. And this was a, a huge problem for social media, right? It was a huge problem. And ironically, what kind of saved them was the political issues of the 2016 election because it allowed the conversation to pivot away from we are hacking your attention and making these things addictive to things like 
data privacy and content moderation, which is much more complicated and much more obfuscated. And these are issues that they could maybe do something about. And, and the debates are really complicated. And it distracted people from what was becoming a major problem for them in 2017, which is, wait a second, you made these addictive. We're using it way much, than, way more than we should. And so Tristan Harris was sort of the first person to point that out. Right. And so much of that matters on how much people actually care about whether their brain is being hacked into. Right. So I remember I saw a guy on The Daily Show talking about how he used to work for a big food brand company, a big, uh, you know, something that made all the different processed foods and sitting in a lab with other scientists trying to figure out the exact amount of sugar, sweet umami that would make you want to eat more and more and more, but never get full, but want to keep having it. And out of principle, I was like, ah, I'm so mad. Like they're tricking my brain and my body into wanting this stuff. I don't want to have that anymore. And I eat far less processed food because it annoys me the idea that it's not even really food. It's chemicals that were made to approximate something that I would want to keep having. And I kind of feel that way about the Internet. Like when I find out that it's intentionally using psychology and science to trick me into wanting to click the next thing or, you know, I had Gia Tolentino on and she wrote this great story about TikTok and how it basically like reads your mind and then sends you to the next thing so that you never want to get off this ride. Um, that makes me want to pull back on my behavior. But that, now I'm not everybody. There are some people who really don't care what they figured out as long as it gives them this fix for boredom or this rush of, of, excitement when they get a new like how do how does is that sort of part of why it died down because people just didn't care well no i think it, i i think it was these other issues right I, I i the fact that we are engineering these things to be addictive was a bit of a bombshell of a revelation i mean this is the big story i tell in that key chapter in my book is that what we forget is that in the early days of smartphones and social media, we didn't look at our phones all the time. That would be a completely weird behavior. No one did that. No one bought an iPhone in 2009 and looked at it all day long. The key step that triggered that behavior is when the social media companies led by Facebook, and in particular Facebook trying to prepare their revenue numbers for their IPO, they re-engineered the experience to be about these things like likes and retweets and hearts and photo auto tags and all these incoming social approval indicators, which the founding president, Sean Parker, described as us trying to hack your brain, which is exactly what they were doing. So they completely changed everyone's relationship with their phone without their permission and without anyone really wanting to look at their phone more. I think this is a bit of a, a, a bombshell of a storyline. And what I found is when, I, when I'm on the road, let's say promoting the book, it's what people care about. What they care about is I'm looking at this too much. I'm looking at this too much, and it's taken away from other things I find valuable. But there seems to be, and this is just speculating, but there seems to be a big disconnect, let's say, between the media that covers technology, what they care about, and what the average person cares about. Because if you're a technology journalist, things like Twitter are so much at the core of your life, you have a hard time even thinking about it as being anything but essential. So the storylines that right. capture your attention is, how are people misusing these essential public goods? Who is using, you know, what information is false? What is, you know, what's happening here? What's happening to people's data? How are these essential public goods being misused? But when I'm on the road talking about whatever these topics, no one ever raises their hand and says, like, the thing I'm really worried about is what's happening to my data. Or the thing I'm really worried about is what exactly the content moderation is. That's never what I hear. What I hear is I'm not paying attention to my kid. Or I used to spend a lot of time outside doing these things that mattered, and now I'm just on my iPad. So I think there's a big disconnect between what we're seeing reported and what the vast majority of people who are uneasy with this technology are actually feeling right now. 
Well, and digital minimalism isn't painting tech as bad or your phone inherently as bad, particularly coming from someone who works in the field, right? That would be very strange if you wanted us to all, uh, you know, get rid of electricity. But it is talking about how it needs to be intentional. And I think what you just pointed to is really interesting with if you introduce something to someone, a, a random uh, product, and you said, uh, this is going to make you uh, smarter at times, you're going to be uh, entertained by it, but it's also going to make you lonely, you're going to struggle with mental health, you're going to have a loss of focus, you're going to waste a lot of time, you're going to lose some friendships potentially, you're going to argue with strangers, right? They're going to be like, ah, I don't know if the benefits outweigh it, right? But we don't really take our interactions, our, our relationships with our phones We don't get that big of a view of it usually. We're looking at very specific things. Well, I like Facebook because I get to see pictures of my friend's kids. Or I need Twitter because I need to be updated on the sports news of the day when it happens. Um, I think that's one of the biggest issues with it, right, is that there are benefits. It can make you smarter. There are things to be gained from it. It's just that most people don't give themselves any rules. And then it becomes a wash because they, they misuse it and they waste time on it. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I mean, the social media companies call this the ecosystem strategy, which is you have a broad ecosystem of possible services and benefits. And your goal is that for each potential user, there's something in there that is unambiguously useful to them, like the finding pictures of their nephews or nieces. Or, you know, for me, there's certain trade rumors about the Washington Nationals that I really do need to know. I mean, <laughs> well, congratulations <laughs> if you're a Nats fan. I take full credit. Yes. <laughs> um, no, it, it is exciting. Uh, and then once you're in, then they want you in the ecosystem. Then once they're in the ecosystem, uh, they trap you. And now you're going to spend two, three hours a day, almost none of it, which really connects to that original benefit. So the core idea of digital minimalism is who are these guys, they're women, these digital minimalists that seem to have this figured out. What they do is pretty simple. They start by figuring out what do I really want to do? What do I care about? How do I like to spend my time? And then they work backwards and say, okay, what tech might amplify these things I care about? And that's the tech they allow into their lives. But the reason why this is so effective is once you know why you're using a specific piece of technology, you know, I am using Facebook for exactly this purpose, you can start to optimize. Now you can put rules in place that will make sure that you get that value, but you don't fall down these traps that have nothing to do with that value. And as soon as people start putting these rules in place, optimizing tech for specific purposes – their entire relationship changes, and they go back to 2009 iPhone-type users. They use their tech for these specific high-leverage purposes. It gives them huge benefits, but for the most part, it's not this constant source of distraction. So, I mean, it seems simple. Minimalism is simple, but its impacts I've really found to be pretty profound. You work backwards. This is what I want to do, and then you just look at tech as a toolbox that you pull things out of very carefully to support these small number of things you really care about. That shift in perspective makes all the difference. Yeah, the idea of it being a tool and not a companion. And right now, for so many of us, it's it's essentially a companion. It's who do I talk to when I'm bored? Who do I listen to when I've got nothing else to listen to? Like where we, we start to create this relationship with our phone that goes beyond using it specifically for things and instead searching it to find out what might fill our time or what, what might be interesting. Um, I want to get to some of the digital minimalism steps that you advise for people, but I quickly wanted to have you sum up some of the things that we're losing out on because of our inability to detach from our phones. There's a couple things, uh, and, and starting with solitude and why sort of the idea that we're never bored anymore can be bad. Well, so solitude, if we use the, the definition that I think is relevant, is when you are spending time free from input from other minds. So the definition of solitude I care about here 
is you're not processing another mind's outputs. So you're not talking to someone, you're not listening to something, you're not reading something. That type of solitude is absolutely crucial because it used to be essentially the default state. This was the default state your mind was in. It was you, your thoughts, and observing the world around you. And then occasionally you would interact with another human, at which point your mind would go into all hands on deck mode because we're wired to be very social. We expend a huge amount of resources to manage interactions with other minds. And so we would go into this all hands on deck mode to let's say have an interaction with a family member or a tribe member. One of the things we have now with the, this sort of odd constant companion model of smartphones is that for the first time in human history, we can banish every last moment of this type of solitude from our life. That at any possible moment where it might just be us, our thoughts, and looking at the world around us, we can look at a screen and there'll be a nice statistical algorithm showing us something that's been uh, mathematically selected to make us interested. The result of this is our brains never get into that default state, which they're not at all wired to be. You can't keep your brain revved up in process input from other not, uh, mind modes all the time. What happens when you try to do that? Things break down with one of the biggest side effects being the sense of anxiety that has become a sort of pervasive background hum in our, in, our, in our society. We just kind of accept it. Yeah, we're all just kind of anxious all the time. A lot of that is that we're simply overclocking our brains. They're not meant to always be processing this information. That's a sort of misuse of our neuronal hardware. And that's sort of the idea behind uh, meditation, right? That we need to occasionally quiet our minds, whether that's, you know, in in walking and moving around and trying to focus on one problem or literally meditating and trying to think of nothing is this idea that our brains need a, a break occasionally. Yeah, um, but you don't, even, you don't even have to go so far as meditation. It's sufficient just to do stuff throughout the day that you don't have your phone with you. I mean, even if you're just looking around thinking, even if your mind's not clear, it's just the fact that it's you and your own thoughts. That's the state that we have to be in on a regular basis. Well, and we used to do that a lot. I remember, you know, when I would be on track trips in college, I would sit on a bus and I would stare out the window and think. And occasionally I would have a journal and the things I thought I would write down. Uh, and there's a lot of creativity and space to, to solve things and think about yourself and other people and everything else when you're not being fed new information constantly, um, which I think is hard because I also am someone who very much likes to use my time to like peak. I, I, I talk about my day being like a Jenga game. Like, I need everything to slide into a little slot because otherwise I won't get it done. So if I'm getting my nails done, I'm listening to a podcast. If I'm working out, I'm listening to a radio show to prep for my other show later. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, right, as long as you occasionally get breaks? Yeah, as long as, because I have a similar type of lifestyle. Uh, but as long as you're regularly scheduling in time where it's just you and your mind, and even if it's 10 minutes here, 20 minutes here, or after you shut down at 7 or something like this, that's fine. What you're trying to avoid is the complete lack of solitude, which is right. this incredibly artificial condition that really wasn't possible until about seven or eight years ago. So the opposite of that is also true. We don't need too much solitude. We also need uh, human interaction. And, you know, the guest I just had, Jamil Zaki, was talking about how the lack of day-to-day, face-to-face communication because of urban living, solo living, you know, having our AirPods and everything else can affect our empathy and kindness toward each other. Uh, Kate Fagan, a colleague of mine, wrote a book, uh, What Made Maddie Run, and some of the research in there is about how our actual brains react to talking on the phone versus reading a text versus talking in person. And on the phone and in person, you at least get some brain activity when you talk to someone you love. If someone you love sends you a text about a hard moment you're going through, the brain activity isn't there. You can feel like you've had the same exchange of consolation and kindness, but your brain doesn't see it and hear it that way because it actually needs to be triggered by the sound of a voice or, you know, the, the 
psychosomatic reaction to somebody's face and, and what they're doing while they're talking to you. Um, that's a huge part of this, right? Our phones and why there's so much loneliness and mental health issues is we're stepping away from the actual face-to-face communication. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be absolutely true. It helps explain this otherwise paradoxical result that we find again and again that increased social media usage tends to increase loneliness, which doesn't make sense on the surface. I mean, social media use is a social activity, but what seems to be happening is exactly what you're talking about. It's not that being on social media, that activity makes you feel lonely. It's when you replace other types of richer social interactions with the social media, you end up with a net loss. I mean, all the research is clear. We're incredibly sophisticated social animals. Our our experience of sociality is multimodal, to be sure. We take in all sorts of different channels of information. The whole thing gets mixed together in different parts of our brain. Is how we simulate and understand the people we're talking to. Right now, for example, I'm really listening to the, the timber and pacing of your voice. The, a careful listener would probably notice that there's some limbic confidence going on here where we're actually matching the way that we're pacing, the way we talk. This helps create a sense of empathy. So we have these hmm. deep, complicated, multimodal social computers because this was absolutely crucial to our species survival. And this complex social computer that's evolved over millions of years does not understand glowing ASCII characters on a piece of glass. It right. doesn't know what that is. There, that just, we have no experience with that on any sort of deep evolutionary time scale. And so if we take this rich dance that we train our whole lives to do, which is to be communicating richly with other humans, and we replace it with ASCII characters and bitmap emojis on this small little piece of glass, we think in the frontal cortex, oh, man, I'm being so social. I've been on my phone all day long. But the rest of this huge complex computer, which is just lying there idle doing nothing, is like, man, we're, we're lonely. When's right. the last time we've actually communicated with someone? I think it's a real issue. Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. The holidays are here. This year, give yourself the gift of extra money in your pocket. Pay off your credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Roll your high-interest credit card payments into just one payment at a lower fixed rate. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates as low as $5.95 APR with AutoPay. Plus, there are absolutely no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Spain. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Spain. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Spain for more information. That's what she said. So one of the things that you talk about in figuring out how to declutter uh, digitally is that it's not just get rid of your phone or delete this app. It's about what do you want your life to be? It is a big question. It is a deep question. It is a real uh, understanding of yourself. It's not as simple as Facebook is bad, social media is bad. It's who are you and what do you want and how is what you do on your phone actually filling your day and your time and therefore filling your life? Well, this, this is the big surprise finding of what's going on with, with all this excessive phone use. It really is what it's replacing. And what people discover when they step away from the constant companion model is that they are surprised the extent to which this distraction 
has kept them away from the important things in life, including dealing with hard things going on in their life, hard things that they have to deal with in themselves and in their job and in their friend circles, looking, you know, facing head on difficulties, having aspirations for what they want to be doing, pursuing harder activities that give us much more richer meaning. It pushes that all out and creates essentially an existential void. But it's distracting enough that it, we don't notice this big void that's yawning right behind us. And, and that's kind of the state that so many of us are in. There's this big existential void that's getting deeper and deeper and deeper behind us. But the phone, which is causing it, has us looking just off to the side so we don't quite notice it. And when people step away, even temporarily, they realize, you know, my God, uh, I haven't been living life. You know, it's like the island of the lotus eaters. And so people are, are surprised the extent to which this is keeping them away from the hard but important things that makes a good life good. And so, yeah, reclaiming your life from the devices, it's all about starting with what you want to do and why you want to do it, and then putting those devices to work to help with that goal. And it could be behaviors like, I want to exercise more. It could be skills. I want to play an instrument. It could be time spent with friends and family. It could be volunteering. It could be writing your book instead of procrastinating. Any number of things. But it is true, the the, the time that we spend doing mindless, unintentional things on our phone would be replaced by something else. I think that's very hard for people to understand is unless you it's sort of the sliding doors. I don't know why that stupid Gwyneth Paltrow movie always comes to mind, but I think it just was like it's just like the visual that always pops into your head of this idea. You can't actually figure out what your Tuesday would have looked like if you had replaced everything that you'd done on your phone with something else until you actually try it. But that's very hard to get people to do, right? Yeah, but it, it's a point that we've known, the sages have been pointing out as far back as antiquity, not about phones, but in general about this types of easy distractions. I mean, this was Thoreau's big point in Walden, which is which is really a book about economic minimalism, not really about nature, if you read it closely. But he makes this point. He talks about, you know, farmers who get blindsided by, you know, how what value they're going to get out of this thing they just bought, but not think about how many hours of extra labor it required to actually buy it and whether or not that trade off was actually worth it, you know. Is having the wagon that allows you to get to town each week 20 minutes faster worth it if it takes three extra hours of labor per week to actually pay off the loan he took to get it, right? That was Thoreau doing this thinking. The same thing applies today. You have a double opportunity cost. So first, this takes you away from things that could be more valuable. Two, when you are doing the things that are more valuable, the constant companion model of phone use diminishes the value you get out of it. There's a difference than being there with your friend completely and being there with your friend plus looking at text all the time. So it's hitting us on both sides. And I think the net loss of rich value in people's lives is much larger than we think because what we focus on is, hey, in the moment, this TikTok video is kind of funny. What's so wrong with looking at something funny? I'm just a little bit tired. Right. Yeah. And we don't add it all up to the amount of time that we spend doing that instead of being intentional. Um, One thing I think is clear to me um, and is partly why I've used this podcast that was ostensibly supposed to be somewhat connected to sports in some way, maybe. And instead, I've just started moving towards like really interesting uh, psychology and neuroscience and everything else is that when you get older and everything else becomes a little bit more settled, you know who you are, you have a job, maybe you're more financially settled, you've got a place to live, you're not hungry for all the other things, then you start to not only look inward, but also around you at other people. You get really, for me at least, very invested in understanding myself and other people and behaviors, how to make your life as great as it can be, how to, uh, you know, really accentuate the time that you're, you're here on this earth. 
when you're younger, there's not as much time often to think about that stuff, right? You're constantly just trying to figure out how am I paying my bills? Is this a job that I like? All that stuff. But younger people are the ones who are learning these habits and behaviors and don't have anything to compare it to. So they're in an even tougher situation because I can at least say I remember a time where I didn't spend time on my phone all the time. What did that feel like? What did I do? How did I spend my time? For younger people, that didn't exist. They've always had the Internet. They've always had uh, smartphones pretty much. Uh, How much more difficult is it when you don't have anything to compare it to, when you can't go back and remember a time when our phones were not like this? It's definitely an issue. See, I noticed this because as as part of the work for my book, I, I suggest in the book this 30-day process where you, you essentially sort of step away from everything for 30 days to get your act back together, and then you kind of rebuild your digital life. And so I had something like 1,500 people go through this experimentally when I was preparing to write about it in the book. And what I found was there was a huge gap at exactly that generation divide. So people who remembered let's say, young adulthood without constant companions, smartphones, and social media, describe this experience of walking away from 30 days as a return to things that they used to enjoy doing, a rediscovery. I forgot how much I used to like reading books or uh, deep socialization, actually sacrificing time and attention uh, on behalf of another person or, or thinking creative thoughts or walking or what have you. For young people, it was terrifying. And they actually had a very low success rate. It, literally, the what they, the first day, what do I do this first day when I don't have my phone with me was an existential crisis. And so I, I had to actually revise my advice now. When I talk to someone who, let's say, is you know, 35 or younger, or maybe 30 or younger, you have to kind of get the divide right, I say before you actually experiment with walking away and doing my sort of 30-day process, I would actually spend a lot of time first, before you change anything about your digital habits, trying to put in place and discover more of the alternatives so that when you actually get to that time when you try to step back and see what life is like, you know what to do or you have something to draw on. You basically have to do a crash course in non-digital meaningful activities. Uh, If you're young enough, you basically have to cram for that exam. So I think it's a huge problem. The other huge problem young people have is we underestimated the degree to which adolescence, in particular, adolescence and young adulthood, is a training ground to learn how to interact with other human beings. I mean, we we all remember, those of us who are old enough, being at the high school party when you're 16 years old and how complicated that social navigation was. Like, am I supposed to be here? Am I cool enough? Who do I talk to? How do I look? How do I interact with this person? And all that awkward interacting, in-person interacting throughout our teenage years and beyond is how we actually mastered the very complicated art of interacting in person with other human beings. We have this whole generation now who missed that. They don't go to the high school party. They, they send whatever it is, Snapchat or whatever the new technologies of the day, it, it changed a lot now, but they sit in their room. And or they, they go and they're on their phone. phone at the party next to each yeah. other. Right. And That's a baby step. But yeah. and I, and this, I mean, this sounds like get off my lawn, but I, maybe I'm, I'm young enough and my lawn is small enough that I can get away with it. Uh, it sounds like get off the lawn type curmudgeon behavior, but there's a lot of research that backs this up is that this generation is now getting to the workplace and they have to talk to clients. They have to talk to their bosses. They have to talk to their colleagues. They have to do the business of working with other people to produce valuable output. And they're completely lost. They don't know how to do it. And so that's another side effect, right? So we underestimate what happens when we, uh, I mean, it's an interesting experiment, but we underestimate what the negative impacts are going to be when we take a whole generation and say, mediate your whole life through pictures and ASCII characters on a small glowing piece of glass. 
Yeah, it's fascinating you say that because one of my friends runs a retail store, and I was talking to him about his trouble in hiring people who who can work for him and are invested. And I started off with the get off my lawn millennials. Man, they just they, there's no work ethic. They all want to change the world. They don't want to do the jobs you got to do first. And then I thought about it, and I said, man. If I was working one of the first jobs I ever had that had nothing to do with my career aspirations, that was not anything I was passionate about, it was just I need to go to work and make some money, and I had in my hand something that had movies, videos, social media, interesting articles about things I actually did care about, it would be very hard to just stand there and stare and wait for someone to walk in the store or even to maybe engage with a coworker I didn't like. Like we used to have to talk to people that we did not enjoy back in the day. And now we don't have to do that. We could just choose to not do that and to stay at our phone. And it doesn't make it okay, but it made me much more empathetic for millennials who haven't known otherwise in trying to focus when they've got this thing in their hand and the job is something that they're wholly uninterested in. Yeah, and then there's the, there's the uh, the wider economic impact, and maybe this goes a little bit back more to deep work territory, but I think we're actually going to see in the uh, economy-wide metrics a continued stalling in productivity because our economy is increasingly focused on complex knowledge work. Complex knowledge work rewards intense concentration. The easier stuff is increasingly being automated or outsourced. We have a whole generation that is essentially terrible at concentration. It, it's it's yeah. because we gave them these devices. It's the same as if we were in ancient Sparta, where our entire civilization depended on warfare. And if we were giving junk food and cigarettes to all of our, our kids, it's <laughs> going to be a problem when they get the war fighting age. <laughs> hey, this is our business. It's being out there and being strong. Well, the business of America economy right now is being out there and being smart, and that requires concentration. And so I think there's also going to be an issue that's going to hit us at the level of, I'm talking about economic-wide metrics, that when you build out a whole workforce of people who are uncomfortable concentrating, and you say, our main output as a country is uh, knowledge, complex knowledge that, that, that comes from thinking hard about things, that's going to be problematic. Yeah. Well, so I had... Um... I had Daniel Levitin on my podcast, The Neuroscientist, and I know you he's one of the people who uh, did a blurb for your book. And I remember talking to him about multitasking and the idea of going back and forth between things. You feel like you're nailing it, but in fact, you're making your brain work very hard and you're wasting whatever, however many minutes it takes uh, when you get back into the project you were working on. You you are wasting all the time reengaging turning your brain back to the folder that it was looking at. And it's something as simple as switching back to your check your email. So I know when I'm writing a long form piece for ESPN, I close all my tabs. The only tabs that can be open are research related because I don't want to see a notification in my email. I don't want to be tempted to look up something else. Um, and you talk about that too, in terms of uh, our ability to not just focus on work, but life and the people around us. We're just taxing our brains by the constant back and forth. Oh, yeah, we are not good at network switching, and it takes time. And we, you know, this is a result that goes back to experiments as early as the 1920s in psychology. Now, today we have people like Levitin who can actually get into the neuroscience and explain what actually is happening in the brain. But we've known this for a century. It takes time to switch our attention from one thing to another. And so if, for example, you're in a work context, the very worst thing you could do if your work requires you to produce something complicated is to say, okay, um, work on this, whatever, this script, this memo, this computer program, but we want you like the average knowledge worker to switch and check an inbox once every six minutes, which is about what the average knowledge worker does. That is a recipe for 
incredibly diminished cognitive output because every time you do that quick check, you're switching your circuit before it completely switches over. You try to switch back. The whole thing gets jumbled. It takes a long time for your mind to clear it out. And before it can clear it out, you check again and create a new jumble. The same thing happens in our personal lives. Uh, when you're trying to, let's say, extract value from spending time in nature with a friend, every time you do a quick check of a phone and glance at an inbox or a text message, you get this jumble of network switching. And suddenly the richness of the experience is far diminished. And so we do this enough at all times at work in our personal life that in general, our experience of the world is persistently diminished. We don't even realize it until we try experiments, you know, like saying, go without your phone for a month. And then suddenly people, it says if you're taking fog off of their eyes, life feels right. completely different. Or if you're uh, in work, you say, spend half your first half of every day no email or something like this. Do an experiment like that. It's as if you're taking some sort of neurotropic drug, like you're on the limitless pill or something like that. Right? <laughs> like, wow. And what we're getting back to is actually normal. We don't realize the degree to which we're persistently diminishing our experience to this subnormal thing that we, we come to think of as just, I guess, this is what life is. And it's like when, you know, Wizard of Oz goes into color at that 15 minute mark into the movie. That's what happens when you take this constant context switching out of your life. Well, and you acknowledge that we're still relatively new in the age of the Internet, and so we're still not even sure about how using the Internet and our phones and everything else is actually changing our brains and how they work. There are some studies uh, involving young people who have trouble looking into each other's eyes or who cut out of a conversation right around the same minute uh, as everybody else their age when they aren't in- inspired or-, or enthused by it and immediately check their phone Uh, There's all these studies that are going on now to try to help us understand the ways that we're either damaging our brains or not utilizing them well. Um, But a lot of it hasn't come out yet, right? So we're the guinea pigs for all this stuff that we will later find out was uh, deeply damaging to how we function with each other and and all that other stuff. Um, So so let's quickly go over the steps for this digital declutter. It starts with 30 days, and it's not throw your phone out for 30 days. It's identify the things that you really need and keep those and get rid of everything else. Yeah, so you're basically taking a break from what I call uh, optional personal technology. So these are the technologies in your personal life that uh, you can step away from for 30 days without it being a big deal. So for most people, this is like social media, streaming videos, video games, online news, things you can step away from for a month. It's not going to cause a big deal. It's not work things. So it's not an excuse to not answer your boss's email, unfortunately. And where you do have overlap, so like if your work requires you to do a little bit on Facebook for, let's say, recruiting or something like this, that's fine. Just put some rules around it. You know, not on my phone. I do it on my work computer. I have a schedule for the for the purpose of the 30-day experiment. So uh, you're, you're essentially cleaning out your proverbial personal digital closet so that you can have that be empty to the best of your ability for about a month. And then you define the rules very carefully because – If someone needs to be on a Facebook group because it involves their kids after school project or something or needs to be on a Facebook group that that helps promote their brand or works on their brand, then they would bookmark the page for that group, never entering their personal timeline. So they can't get looped into the suck of who, what's this person writing and who's this person doing, never getting on the feed, only going to that bookmarked page. Yeah, and it would be on your computer. You would take the apps off your phone almost certainly unless you really had to do it on your phone. The other tricky thing is text messaging because it plays an incredibly important logistical role for a lot of people. Hey, my daughter needs to get picked up from school. That's how I find out a text message. But it also can be this constant uh, distraction. So what a lot of people do during the 30 days with text messaging is if they are expecting a key logistical text, 
they'll keep it around. Otherwise, they tend to put it on do not disturb and maybe check every two hours or something like this. So the, the worst that could happen is that their friends or family trying to reach them might have a bit of a latency before they respond. So, so the, the things you can't get rid of altogether for the experiment, just put some rules around it. And the rules will be different for everybody. So it's about holding yourself accountable, right? Don't make it too easy on yourself by saying, well, I technically need this. I, I don't even know where I would begin, to be honest with you, because I, I feel like my job requires crossing over into all these places. And there's obviously benefits, like everyone who's listening to this is listening on a podcast, right? So maybe you decide that podcasts are not a time suck and or don't require bouncing around and wasting time. It's intentional. You choose one, you listen to it. Maybe you're accomplishing other things while listening. That might be something that you would allow. Well, you could, and maybe you would have during your 30 days, some sort of uh, schedule for, okay, I listen to podcasts during this particular activity, but not every activity. Another hack a journalist did, uh, which I thought was really interesting, who was going through something like this, is that they actually uh, hired someone to check for relevant breaking news on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> and the idea was this person could, they, they, they had to check, I think it was like once every two hours, and they, they gave them, you know, here's the particular, I won't say what particular field the journalist was in, but uh, here's the particular topic I care about. And uh, they could call them, they could call her, <laughs> something broke, uh, which, which, by the way, is something I'm surprised that more newsrooms don't do. This really should be like one of the first things you do as a first year intern at a media company right. is to monitor Twitter on behalf of, <laughs> of the journalists who have been there longer. So you can get creative, you know, Uh, whatever gets you as much sort of space from the constant companion model as possible is what you're trying to do without it being a problem. Yeah, I would have some assistant where I'm like, you didn't tell me about this meme that everyone's saying, and now I didn't use it on this TV show, and it wasn't funny. Um, it would be very difficult. It would be, <laughs> I would need someone who, uh, who understands the industry very well. Uh, but I guess that would be, that would be the search for the perfect intern, the perfect assistant. Um, all right. So they've got the tricks that they could do to keep the couple things they need. And other than that, they try to do this full sort of, uh, a reset. And then when they reintroduce things, how does that work? Right. So, so crucially before that, during this 30-day period, it's not just about some sort of detox effect. And if anything, I'm, I'm really wary about the, the sort of appropriation of the word detox in this context. Uh, during the 30 days before you reintroduce, what you want to be doing is very actively do experimentation reflection, getting back in touch with what you really matters to you, what you really like to do, what's really valuable to you. So it's a very active time where you're rediscovering beyond the world of your phone, what do I actually like to do with my time outside of work? What's actually meaningful? Then when you get to the reintroduction, you work backwards from what you discovered. And so for each of these activities you identify during the 30 days as being really important to you, you ask, what's the best way to use technology to support or amplify this? You bring back in that technology, you put some rules around it to maximize that benefit and avoid other costs. And those answers, that's what defines technology in your personal life going forward. So Hmm. everything that comes back into your life comes back in for a particular reason. It's essentially the digital equivalent of Mary Kondo. I didn't know about Mary Kondo until after I wrote this book. Now I know a lot about her. Uh, But it's essentially the digital equivalent of what she says, which is don't just sort of mess around with your closet or take out a few things or buy some organizers. Empty it down to bare shelves and then just put back into things that you really care about. That's what you're doing. You're starting from scratch with tech in your personal life. This time when you rebuild it, you're doing it much more intentionally than the first time around. You bring things back in to serve particular, very important purposes. And because you know why you're using the tech, you can put really good optimization rules around it. 
Yeah, Marie Kondo has it down. Uh, that system works, and that whole sparking joy thing is a very easy but vague way to kind of en- encompass everything. Does it spark joy because it makes you smarter, or it's information that you need, or it you know it tells you where to pick up your kid? Uh, it kind of can all fall under that umbrella. Um, all right, so if I want to take these things on for myself, it's a personal choice. I can follow all these steps. I can figure out what works for me. How do you change someone else? What if someone else desperately needs to be digitally decluttered and helped out with this? Uh, have you tried to push this onto anyone in your life and re- received resistance and had to figure out how to trick them into trying it? Well, if you try to push it on someone, it's not going to work is what I, I hear. <laughs> and I'm wise enough <laughs> not to try it. If you if you come to someone and and, and say it's the same thing if you go to someone and say look your diet is bad you're, <laughs> obviously you're eating poorly I'm just looking at you like <laughs> let me right. give you some advice oh, they're going to do the opposite of whatever you say uh, the two things that seem to be really effective in helping to to change other people's options is a demonstrate in your own life so let them see your life and what you're getting out of it. Let that be aspirational. And two, I found that it's actually quite effective for people to learn about or hear about the degree to which this constant companion model of phone use is so constructed and arbitrary. The the, the storyline, that kind of key chapter in my book about how a small number of social media companies figured out how to completely re-engineer social media so that we'd look at our phones a lot more, how that has nothing to do with the value proposition of social media, why there's nothing fundamental about this technology that says you need to look at your phone all the time. When you, when you learn about the degree to which you're being manipulated to do that for no real good reason except for to increase the revenues of a small number of companies, that is also a really important aha moment. So if they have that in mind, so they're aware of the exploitative and arbitrary nature of a lot of what they're doing. And then they see what you're doing as an alternative and the advantage of it. It's why the vast majority of my book is about the positive things your life can be without the constant companion mode. It's not the vast majority is not about what's wrong with it. Uh, it's about the positive. And they see the positive. And they have that one kernel of negative information. Oh, this is more arbitrary than I realized. That can be a pretty effective combination for sparking someone to say, OK, I'm ready for a change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and I think it's so hard. Um, It really is an addiction, and you have to view it as such in order to take the steps to separate yourself from it. It can't be as simple, I don't think, as thinking of it as a habit. You have to really notice that in a moment of boredom or, or, or whatever, that you reflexively grab for it and that that's your answer to everything, or that I'll close an app deciding I'm going to stop looking at this app. And then 30 seconds later, my mind will wander and I'll go right back. And I'll be like, why did I do that? I, I just said I was going to stop doing that. And so it is addiction and it has to be treated as such as opposed to just sort of a casual, I'm going to try to stop looking at that less. That hasn't worked for me. That's for sure. It, it doesn't work uh, when people just try to step away or if you just focus only on the negatives. This is what I don't like about this. And I don't want to do things I don't like. That doesn't work. If you instead focus on the positive, this is what I want to do in my life. This is what's important for me in my life. And here is how I'm going to rebuild my digital tools to support these things I care about. Your success rate is much, much higher. Just like in fitness, when people get locked into positive philosophies, like I want to be primal and paleo because this is the right way to live, they're much more likely to eat consistently better than if you instead just try to tell them that junk food is bad and they should probably eat less of it. So focus on what you want your life to be instead, as opposed to what you don't like about your life right now, much more likely to have a sustainable change. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. Uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Index 
expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Desert Island album. Probably Led Zeppelin 2. Nice. Uh, what habit or what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, diligence. By by what I mean is the Steve Martin definition of diligence, which is it's not <laughs> just about sticking with one thing; it's about consistently saying no to everything else. I think that's my goal. Ah. I get a couple things in my teeth, and I'm willing to run with it for a decade or more, uh, and that works out pretty well. Oh, that is so the opposite of me, and yet I've found success somehow by by virtue of being a jack of all trades and master of none. Uh, that's fascinating. Maybe I should try to focus a little more. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? My my, my biggest failure. Well, um, I, I didn't quite do as well as my my contemporary Mark Zuckerberg. If we were <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if only, we're gonna, if only if you're only if you're val- doing monetarily, right? I, I would argue that maybe, especially currently with some things that are going on uh, politically and otherwise, that maybe you're maybe you're thriving. <laughs> that's that's probably true. Yeah, my my day to day experience is probably less stressful. You're right. So it's yeah. not having the right yardstick. So okay, maybe yeah. I don't feel so bad about that. <laughs> as far as I know, you haven't affected any uh, elections lately. So you know. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. For for no lack of trying, it turns out. That, uh, <laughs> uh, number four. Have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, as a kid, for sure, yeah. But not not as an adult. Not as a grown up. I, I have not been punched as the face in the face since probably I don't know. I was like twelve years old. You definitely have kids, don't you? I have three. Yeah. Yeah. Only parents say as a grown up. <laughs> I don't think anybody like I don't think I've ever used that unless I was talking to a kid. Um, number five. <laughs> if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, uh, I just heard an interview with the novelist Dave Eggers, where he said oh, his, yeah. schedule, his schedule, uh, he, right now, he, he wakes up, he reads for two hours, and then he sits <laughs> around with a notebook to kind of capture random passages that come to mind. Uh, and then at some point, he might try to write some. And he, has no, he does not have a smartphone, and there's no Wi-Fi in his house. So that entire wow. period is completely cut off from the Internet. And so after I heard that interview, the, my first response is, man, I want to be Dave Eggers when I grow up. Yeah, when you're a grown-up. Yeah, um, yeah. He, uh, he's from Lake Forest, which is where I grew up. And uh, uh, a Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius is one of my favorite books. Uh, he's, he's great. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, well, I mean... Uh... I don't know what would be the most. Like uh, an issue I have to deal with a lot is uh, I I have a high basal metabolism, which means I run very hot, and I'm not used to wearing suits. And so it's a a not uncommon occurrence that I can be like on a stage, on a panel in front of like lots of people, and I will just open up like a like a, a valve and sweat. Like I'm not, I'm meant to be sort of like living in the cool Scottish moors in a kilt or something like that. I run too hot to be under lights and in suits, and that's happened to me. Uh, yeah, that's happened to me more than once. I, I, I'm kind of used to it now, but it's still a little embarrassing when it does. If you've ever wanted to uh, get a, a fix for that when you're desperately in need, the 
guys who host college game day for ESPN wear suits with air conditioning. It actually blows air through and under their suits using some mechanism that I do not understand. Something you could look into if you're ever in desperate need of of being able to appear without that problem. Uh, That actually exists. I've always wondered that. And also, how do the on-field baseball reporters do it? I've yeah. never understood it. They have to yeah. wear suits and it's 95 degrees. Okay, great. I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might have to use a computer to Google it, but it'll be allowed. It'll be for a purpose. It'll be intentional. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a value-driven activity. Yep. <laughs> that's right. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, I, I've been working recently... I'm relatively healthy, uh, but not like I used to be when I was doing college or high school athletics. And I'm working on that now. I, I would, I want to be in terms of uh, like my cardio, fitness, and diet. I would love to go from a five to a nine. I have images of myself still as a sort of collegiate rower, like I once was, and I'm far from that. So yeah, I, w- I would like to be much more fit once again. There's a lot of apps for that. Yeah, that's the key. If I just if I if I just get the right get the right app, yeah, yeah. Uh, Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that everyone would have to adhere to? Uh, I would say you have to remove from your phone any application where someone makes money off of your time and attention every time you tap on it. I think if we made that one change universal, the cognitive productive surplus we would create in this country would be would be phenomenal you know uh, civic participation would rise people would get healthy again it would be uh, i think a, a phenomenal change for an otherwise relatively small idea my god we'd have to like call our friends and relatives and see how they're doing we wouldn't be yeah, able to just scroll visit. and pretend like we we know what's up uh number nine what's the most scared you've ever been oh Probably when I was uh, when I was uh, 19 years old, and I was I was rowing crew, and I was I was having this this issue with my heart would go really fast, and so they they sent me with a sensor I could bring with me to hold it to my heart like a portable EKG and record and, and record it next time it happens, and then you could phone it in because just before the internet was wireless, you would phone in the information, and I did that, and then they called and said, well. Um, you should come to the hospital right now. <laughs> I was oh. like, well, maybe I can come later. And they're like, no, no, you should come right now. And actually, oh. don't walk up any stairs. <laughs> oh, my don't gosh. Don't walk up any stairs if possible on the way. Um, because, you know, it turned out it was okay, but it was one of two things. And one of those two things was, was going to be the, that same thing that happens to college athletes where the, the ventricle goes out of control and they drop dead. It might have been that. Uh, so until they could figure wow. out it wasn't, it's not the call you like to get. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's terrifying. That's that's terrifying. Um, number ten. What three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Oh, um, I would say uh, focused, uh, you know, uh, good character. I'm going to combine those with a hyphen. <laughs> I'll allow it. And and uh, compassion or empathetic, whatever word you would use to describe, you know, someone who cares about the other people around them. Yeah, that's 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 good. I like those. Um, finally, the bonus question: Who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Oh, interesting question. Um, 
Well, I, I would say, uh, well, well uh, first of all, you know, the golfer Rory McIlroy recently mentioned digital minimalism as a, something he's reading that helped him with the FedEx really? Cup this year. So, so you should have an interview with him where that's all you allow him to talk about. I think that would be <laughs> Uh, but no, I would I would say my my friend Ryan Holiday, if you haven't already, you know, great new book out. Stillness is the key. Uh, you know his book Obstacle is the Way is really heavily used um, in the NFL right now, among other places. It's uh, but anyways a a really interesting philosophical thinker on some of how some ancient wisdom applies to modern life, and cool. I think that's who I would say Ryan Holiday. You got to have him on. I'll have him on together. It'll be good. Yeah, uh. exactly. And, and they could just talk about my book. <laughs> exactly. Just the parts yeah. where you intersect with both of their lives and bring them together. <laughs> um, That's be your podcast. Yeah. There you go. It'll be <laughs> like James go. Corden's couch, right? It'll just bring some disparate people together. And how do they connect to Cal Newport? Um, exactly. Thanks so much it. for coming on. This was really fascinating. I appreciate it. No, it was my pleasure. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, people who post photos of their whack-ass Thanksgiving dinner on social media. Now listen, if your family has crappy meals, I'm not going to hold that against you. Unless you're the one who's actually cooking it, I'm not going to fault you that there isn't a single item on your plate that isn't beige. But it is your fault if you decide to post it to Instagram and expect people to like it and not say terrible things about it. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. How are you going to have a Thanksgiving plate with nothing green? or orange, or literally any color that doesn't match the turkey meat. Again, I'm not judging if it's fancy or expensive. I'm just saying, how the hell is all your food the same damn color? And if it is, why are you sharing it? Don't bring shame on your family by broadcasting the beige. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. If your Thanksgiving plate sucks, keep it to yourself. If you're feeling left out, I guess go online and steal a pic of something that looks appetizing off Google Images and then pretend it's yours. But I'm pretty sure Cal Newport would tell you that it's not a good use of your time. Hashtag don't broadcast the beige. There, I fixed it. If you're looking for another great ESPN podcast, check out Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. Julie has smart conversations with interesting people and she loves donuts, too. They come up a lot. Be sure to download and subscribe to Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate, review it, and leave a dilemma in your review. I might get to it on the podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs>